We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, 15 to 21. And continue on reading it in Ephesians. This is what the apostle writes. See then that you walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take these words that we just read, your inspired words through your apostle, Paul, and that you'd teach us this morning what you'd like us to hear from this text. God, I feel very weak. I pray that you'd fill me with the Holy Spirit and fill us all with the Holy Spirit so that, God, we might just be filled with these fruits here that you speak about. God, I pray that everything around us right now would just disappear. And, Lord, we would just see ourselves completely naked before you, just totally alone and barren before you, Lord, but clothed in the white garments, your righteousness. God, we thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So jumping into the middle of Ephesians again, we've been going through Ephesians verse by verse, and at this point in Ephesians, we're at a very practical part, which is not necessarily, um, you know, I'm young, I don't have a lot of experience. I'm a bit more comfortable with the doctrinal aspect of the letter. But the practical side of the gospel is important. God has done something so amazing for us, brothers and sisters, right? Do you believe that? Do we be, are we people that believe that God has done something incredible, totally incredible? As we sang about this morning, amazing love, or we sing sometimes amazing grace. And that's what we learned, and we are learning as we read. But I really appreciate what you said, Alan, as you pray, as we learn to live as believers together in community. How do you do that? Because every one of us will stand alone before God to be judged. But right now, and in eternity, there is an aspect, there is a reality to the fact that we live together, right? And we know that life is messy. But the gospel transforms the way we live. This is the practical side of the epistle. Paul says, in light of everything that is amazing about what God has done for you, how ought we to walk suitably? And now he explains what that is. The first thing he explains, of course, is that the gospel transforms us to live lives of unity with one another. So Ephesians chapter 4, the first thing Paul jumps right into is unity. 
life together in relationship with each other. Learning to live in the light of grace. Where sin no longer separates us from God, sin no longer has to separate us from one another. So if Wallace sins against me, I don't have to separate from Wallace. Grace can bridge any gap and leap over any wall, run through any troop. Paul also goes on into chapter 5, and he talks about not only relationships that are changed as we live as Christians in light of grace, but even our own personal lives also are changed. And he tells us to walk as children of light. Now, it's not always enough to just tell someone what to do. Sometimes you also have to tell them, or often you also have to tell them how to do it. So for instance, I know for myself, I can't speak for Nick and Jeremiah and anyone else, but I'm sure you could agree. But I'll just speak for myself. When we were working in the bookstore and doing a lot of construction work, it wasn't enough for Carville to tell me what to do. <laughs> he had to tell me how to do it. Because <laughs> if he told me what to do, I might go mess it up. Actually, I would go mess it up. And uh, such is the case with the apostle here. He tells us to walk as children of light. Okay, go, walk. Go live lives of grace and relationship. Go live lives of, of personal holiness before God. But if he doesn't teach us how to do that, we're not going to be able to do it. We'll go mess that up. And there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to understand. There's a lot of things that we need to know about how to walk a life of grace. And this is what Paul's aware of. And so he spends his time not just telling us what to do, but telling us also how to do it, how to go about walking in this. And this is where we're jumping into the middle. He's explaining these things. And we're going to look at some things today of what he says. Now, verse 15, look with me there. Paul sums up everything he's been saying. And I know for the guests you have not been following with us beforehand. We haven't been publishing the CDs either. But in verse 15, he sums up everything he's saying. He says, See then that you walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise. The King James puts it that way, but it would be better said, a better translation would be, it says, be, watch carefully how you walk. So he's not saying walk carefully, so see then that you walk carefully. He's saying carefully watch how you walk. So take careful attention. Pay careful heed to how you're walking. This is an exhortation to observe your walk and to see how you're walking. And here's the two ways. That you're not walking as fools but as wise. So he's summing up what he's been saying. What has he been saying? Right back to chapter 4, Paul is saying this. Look. Now that you know the truth as it is taught in Jesus Christ, now that you know the gospel, now that you have believed the truth from God, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. The, the Gentiles who don't know the truth. Their minds are darkened, their heart is darkened, they're alienated from God's life, and so they have a walk that follows that darkness, a life of darkness, a life of vanity, a life of sin, a life of disunity. As we look at what he said about the Gentiles, we see there's really two things that are in disorder. Relationships and your personal life is in disorder because your mind is in disorder. And he's saying, look, now that you know the truth as it is in Jesus, 
don't walk like the Gentiles walk anymore. So summing it up, he says, don't walk as fools. It is a foolish thing to walk, to practice, to live your life inconsistently with the way you know things to be, isn't it? That's a foolish thing. So it's a foolish thing to walk out onto the street if you know you may get hit by a car, just to walk out without looking right or left, because you know there's cars. Now, if someone didn't know, then it wouldn't be a foolish thing. They just were ignorant, like the Gentiles. But now he's saying, don't live any more like the Gentiles. That would be foolish, to live like people who don't know the Lord, to live like people who don't have light and don't know the truth as it, as it is in Jesus. The truth as it is in Jesus leads us into relationship with each other in grace and personal holiness. God doesn't see us as Gentiles anymore, people separated from him, but he sees us as the people of God, the true Jews. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a true Jew. You are a true child of God. And to be that, you need to know some things. You might not know a lot, but you need to know some things. And that is you need to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that simply by putting your faith in him, you are justified from all things. You're accepted with God. Simple, simple gospel. Of course, in that is a knowledge that he died for your sins, meaning you've sinned, meaning there's things that God is displeased with in your life. It's not that God was simply displeased with sins before you were Christian, but even as you're Christian, when you sin, those things are sins that Jesus died for. No longer counted against you, no longer hindrances to the relationship with God, but sins nonetheless, and you know them to be. Don't walk as fools, but as wise. And he says, pay careful attention that you do this. And I've been thinking about this lately, that so much of the time we fail to walk wisely because we're not careful about how we walk. I've been really convicted about this lately in my life. I feel like I don't give enough careful attention to how I live. Is my actions, are my actions wise or foolish? Are they suitable? Are they consistent with the things that I believe? Sometimes I'm just not careful about it. But he's saying be careful about it. Do you feel that you pay careful attention to the way that you walk. Last week, or two weeks ago, because we were camping last week, look at verse 8 for a moment. Paul writes, You were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then look at verse 10, because there's a little detour in verse 9, but he picks up what he was saying in verse 10. Walk as children of light, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. This is what children of light do. They prove what is acceptable unto the Lord. They ask the question. The word prove there is they test. They test to see what is well-pleasing to God. That's how children of light are to walk. So to walk not as a Gentile who doesn't know God, but to walk as someone who's been enlightened by the truth is to ask the questions when you live through life. Is this pleasing to God what I do? You might think, well, aren't you putting me back under law when you say that, that I'm supposed to you know, live a life asking the question, is this pleasing to God? Absolutely not. Actually, it's the opposite of that. Because your motivation, this is what he's saying if, you, if we miss this, in verse 10, he's talking about our motivation. We're wanting to please God. What is that? Love. 
Our motivation to live is, a motiv- is motivated by love. I want to do those things that please God. I want to be motivated by the love of God, not by the law of God. I don't have to do anything. As a Christian, I don't have to keep commandments, and I don't, my sins don't separate me from God anymore. There's no uh, sense here in the text that if you don't do this, you're going to be cast out. Because the Bible says this, that whoever believes will not be ashamed. Whoever believes will not be ashamed. But, does that mean that we don't have any other motivation to live a life pleasing to God or live a life according to the truth? Is the only thing that we have to motivate us is law or punishment or reward. And you take those away and now we have nothing more to live by. Is that the way... Is that the way it is? Absolutely not. So even though I don't have to, I want to please the Lord because of what he did for me. This is the way children of light think. This is what Paul is telling us here. He's saying, so don't walk foolishly as Gentiles who don't know the truth. Walk as the children of light, testing what is well-pleasing to the Lord. That's the way we ought to walk with God. Does that make sense? Does that make sense that we should be motivated by love towards not only our neighbor, because we talk much about that. You know, I should be motivated by love towards Caden and not by law. But likewise with God in matters pertaining to him and I. I want to be motivated to please him. Verse 16 He goes on to say, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now, this was an expression in his day. It could be better translated, buying the opportunity. Buying up the opportunity. It means not wasting time. When you have an opportunity, use it. When there's a window of opening, take it. Don't waste the opportunity to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Don't waste the opportunity. The idea is kind of like this. When Brad has told me that he had an opportunity once to buy a box full of James Denny's The Death of Christ, which at the time he didn't know it was a valuable book. And later, after we read it, we realized this was a very valuable book, and now it's out of print, and, or it's, a, it's published, it's very expensive. And had he known the value of that book, he could have gotten a whole box of them for pennies. And he's like, oh, why didn't I know at that time? So he didn't buy the, up the opportunity And one of the reasons he didn't buy up the opportunity is because he didn't know they were valuable. One of the reasons why we fail to use our time, to use those opportunities to live for God and to do those things that are well-pleasing to him is because we don't realize the value. I think that's one of the hugest reasons of all. We don't know the value of it. We just think, you know, I'm saved by grace and that's wonderful. And uh, really, my life doesn't matter anymore. Well, Paul spends three chapters telling you the gospel transforms your life. Let it do its work. Walk as children of light. This is an intentional thing. It's not an automatic thing. This isn't something that just happens to you automatically. It's something that you need to see as valuable. Do you see your life as a Christian as a valuable thing? Here's why he tells us to buy up those opportunities. See see this as valuable and use it. Because the days are evil. What does that mean? It can mean two things. 
I think it's both true. The, the incentive to buy up the opportunities is because the days are evil. And first of all, that can mean that you don't have much time. That can mean that the days are troublesome and dangerous. You don't know how long you're going to have. It doesn't necessarily mean moral evil, like the days are morally evil. It can mean that. It can also mean the days are calamitous. You know, in his day, it, wasn't co- it was very common for people to be killed for being Christians. Now, the days are calamitous. And even now, the days are calamitous. Anything could happen. You don't know how much time you have left. Don't waste your life. See the value of a life lived for God and don't waste your life. You have a short time on this earth and then you go to be with God in heaven. But there's such a valuable time here that you can use for God to bless God and to bless others. Do you see that as valuable? Paul says in Romans 13, 11, and 12, and you don't have to go there, but he says, look, now is the high time. He's talking to Christians. It's high time now to wake out of our sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Meaning, he's thinking in time here. I might have believed five years ago or 20 years ago. I'm closer now to when I'm going to be in heaven. I'm closer now to when I'm going to see God and and this life is going to be over. Whether that means I'm closer to my death or whether that means I'm closer to the return of the Lord. And he says, so wake up from your sleep and arm yourself with the weapons of light. So it's a very similar passage. Arm yourselves with the weapons of light. The second way you can take this is that the days are morally evil. That means they're dark. And so therefore, buy up those opportunities to shine the light of truth in those days. Do you think that God gives us opportunities in this dark day to shine the light of the truth? Does he do that? Have you ever had an opportunity to walk as children of light in a morally dark place or in a vain place? or in a place that was devoid of the truth. Have you ever had an opportunity like that and you blew it? I know when I get those opportunities because my heart usually starts to beat. You know? (laughs) I've missed plenty of opportunities. Those are valuable opportunities to, to walk as light in darkness. And I've missed many. And when I've missed them, I felt really bad about it. When I've taken them, I've been filled with joy and thankfulness to God. Buy those times to walk wisely. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we're the only ones who know the truth as it is in Jesus. Those who are outside, it says, are alienated from the life of God and are blinded in their hearts, are ignorant of the, of the things of God. And we're the only ones. If we don't walk wisely, no one will. If we don't shine the light of the truth, nobody will. You can't say somebody else will. It's either us or nobody. And we need to see the value of a life and a soul in darkness. 
Jesus, when he noticed that a sheep was missing, he didn't say, well, tough for that sheep, right? Maybe he'll find his way back, and that will be great, but if he doesn't, well, you got 99. He didn't say that. He didn't think, well, I'm happy with my, you know, flock as it is. Sometimes we do that. I don't really care about shining the light in the darkness and for those who are in ignorance because I'm having a great time as a Christian. I enjoy the fellowship. I enjoy the peace. I enjoy the joy. I enjoy the love of God. It's great. Yeah, there could be, you know, more people saved, but there's enough as it is. That's not the way God thought. That's not the way God thinks. And that's not the way we should think. That would be foolish rather than wise. Buy up the opportunities. Let me just give this challenge. As we leave here, as we go throughout our weeks, when we're not together, and your heart starts beating, and that you know it's going to be awkward, buy up the opportunity. See it as so valuable, like those Denny books. If I don't take this, I'm not going to get them late. Like there's no, there's no other chance for Brad to get those books now. It's gone. See the value and buy up the opportunity. As a matter of fact, it seems like this is Paul's meaning in this text. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says a very similar thing. He says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are outside. Redeeming the time. Buying the opportunities. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 seems to be what he has in mind. So we're to walk in wisdom toward those on the outside, buying up the opportunities to manifest the truth and the wisdom and the light and the love of the gospel to the lost. Verse 17. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is the summary statement again. Children, precious children, saved, redeemed, forgiven, has eternal life. He's saying, precious children, now that you're here, understand what my will is. Understand my heart and walk as children of light. Now in verse 18, Paul gives his last contrast. We've been looking at all these contrasts in Ephesians between walking in darkness and walking in light. Paul gives his last contrast in this way. A most interesting contrast, actually. He says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Why does he choose drunkenness of all things? I don't think it's because drunkenness was so characteristic, or at least I don't think it was merely because drunkenness was so characteristic and common in his day, and he was just contrasting the two things. So he's saying, look, the Gentiles, you know, it's so characteristic and common of them to be, to be drunk. So here's the contrast. Don't be drunk with wine. Wherein is debauchery? Wherein is riot? That's the better translation. Or from the Holman Standard Christian Bible, I like the way it puts it. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless behavior. Or in drunkenness is reckless behavior. Or riotousness or debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. So it's not merely that drunkenness is characteristic and common of the Gentile life, but it's that the contrast is seen and illustrated the best in using drunkenness, and that drunkenness leads to 
a certain kind of behavior. So being filled with the Spirit leads to a certain kind of behavior. This is the contrast here. The contrast isn't between wine and the Spirit, but between drunkenness and being full of the Holy Spirit and the resulting life that comes from that. So this isn't a verse that's condemning or prohibiting alcohol. It's saying drunkenness. In drunkenness is reckless behavior. In being filled with the Spirit is a life of goodness and truth, as he's going to look at here. The Spirit leads us to holy behavior. And there's a few, there's a lot of confusion about what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How many of you have heard various teachings on being filled with the Holy Spirit? Or are you aware that there's all these controversies, right? Jeremiah. Let me just point out a few things about this text. First of all, this is an ongoing, continual exercise for Christians. It's, it's saying, be filled, Christians, with the Holy Spirit. Continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't talking about a one-time event. And I know sometimes when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, sometimes these ideas come out like it's this one-time event. You know, yes, you're saved. Mm-hmm. You're saved and you're going to heaven and all that. You're forgiven. But you need to have another event in your life where you're filled with the Holy Spirit. One-time event. just happens once and it's called a second blessing or second work of God in your life. But this isn't the, this isn't the idea in this verse. Paul isn't saying... Paul isn't talking about a one-time event here. He's not saying, you believers, you Ephesians, you know, you've been saved, you need to have another event in your life happen, which is the filling of the Spirit. He's talking about your walk, your everyday walk, ongoing, continual walk. You wake up in the morning, you eat breakfast, you go do your duties, you eat lunch, you continue whatever you're doing, then you eat supper, then you fellowship with whoever, and then you go to bed. It's in your life, day by day by day that he commands us and exhorts us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's not a one-time thing. And another thing it doesn't imply, it doesn't imply that you aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't imply that the Spirit isn't there. Because sometimes we think, well, if I have to be filled with the Spirit, then obviously there is nothing there. I need to get it in there, right? There is no Spirit in me. The Holy Spirit's not present. I need to be filled with him. But that's not the sense either, because actually the sense of the word in Greek is not to be filled for the first time or to to fill an empty void, but to fill to the full. That's the sense. Be filled to the full with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in every believer. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says to these carnal Corinthians who are doing all sorts of wacky things, he says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that every believer is filled to the full with the Holy Spirit. And this is the sense. Be filled to the full with the Holy Spirit. Be filled to the full. Oftentimes, we aren't filled to the full. Sometimes it feels like just trickles uh, of the Spirit's anointing and power and life is just coursing through us. But Jesus said that in us, there can be rivers of living water flowing out of us. As Jesus talked about the Spirit that we receive, 
rivers is the sense. Now, a river is very different than rain. It's very different than a, dri a dripping tap. If you take a huge dump truck and pull out a huge dump truck full of water out of a river, how low does the river go? It doesn't move, does it? There are cities that draw upon wa the water of the river, and the river remains constant because it has a source that continually is filling that river, flowing full. And God desires in each of our lives a life like that, where we're filled with the Spirit continually, where it's not like, you know, every once in a while the tap is full and the tap is off and the tap is full. The Spirit's there, but he's not, we're not filled to the full. God desires for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit continually, like a river that can't be exhausted. I know that's the way that I want to be. I'm not saying that's the way I am. But here it is. This exhortation, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled to the full. Now the next question obviously is, how do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? Now again, bazillion and one answers, right? How do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? First of all, this is, an, this is something that we have to seek because Paul's telling us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, Nick, be filled with the Holy Spirit intentionally seek this. This is something that we are to go after. And there's various ideas that explain, well, how do I get, how do I go after this? How do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? They say, well, you know, what you have to do is you have to, you know, wait to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That means lock yourself in a closet and throw away the key until the Holy Spirit fills you. You ever heard something like that before? Wait. They say, you know, in, in the book of Acts, the church was praying and waiting till they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They just waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And that's what we're supposed to do is just wait. Because it's, it's on God to fill us. So, Lord, fill me. I'll just wait. If I'm not filled, you don't want me to be filled. Obviously. Which I don't believe is this. This is what Paul's saying. I don't believe God is the one who's withholding it from us. Another thing that is said is, well, you can't be filled with the Spirit unless you deal with all the known sin in your life. How many of you heard that before? This is not only prevalent amongst the LDS church, but it's prevalent also amongst uh, many Christian denominations too. They say, you can't be filled with the Spirit unless you are, you've dealt with all known sin in your life. And I think these ideas prevent people from being filled with the Holy Spirit in truth. What happens is people get desperate to be filled because they see other people so-called getting filled and they think, well, I'm not partaking in this, so I'm going to wait and I'm going to deal with sin. And I, if I'm not being filled with the Spirit, it means I'm not dealing with sin and everybody knows I'm a sinner and everybody knows I'm not right with God. Oh my goodness. And so then I'm going to pretend that I have dealt with all sin and now I'm going to pretend I am filled with the Holy Spirit and everything will be great. It just leads to hypocrisy. That's not the way we're filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't see that anywhere taught in Scripture that you have to deal with your known sin. I'll get to the opposite of that in a moment. Nor are we filled with the Spirit by being thrown around by one another. That might sound funny, but 
once I was in Arkansas and I went to a, well, actually, we, we asked some Christian brothers, is there any, like, you know, service tonight? It was Sunday and we, we hadn't gone to church in the morning. We're like, is there any service we could go to in the evening? And they're like, oh, yeah, I know a church you can go to. Go to uh, this Pentecostal church. Uh, I can't remember. It's called First Pentecostal or something. And, and just go at this time. And we're like, okay, cool. So we went to that church at that time. It was huge. I mean, massive. I mean, bigger than the Logan Temple and the Tabernacle combined. Now, way bigger than that. And you came in through the front doors, and there's these super high ceilings with this amazingly ornate um, art on the ceiling. Looked like it was painted, you know, 300 years ago. And I came in, you're just kind of in awe, and you hear this music kind of in the distance in the next room, and then you open the doors, and the music just almost knocks you over, and you come through the door, and there's like hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people in there, thousands of people, and they're singing. And I noticed there was like a football game going on at the front, what looked to me like a football game. I'm like, what is that? And so a bunch of us kind of, my, my friends all sat in the back, but I wanted to go right up to the front. I wanted to go see what was going on. So I went up there. By, by the way, I realized it wasn't a Pentecostal church. It was a United Pentecostal church, which is actually a lot more funky. And uh, I went up to the front just to see what was going on. I realized they were praying for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that look like? Have you ever heard monkey in the middle? They basically um, put the candidate in a circle surrounded by people and like pushed him around, person to person. It's like, you know, he's just like getting <laughs> thrown around like this from person to person, just throwing them like that. And there's, oh, and back and forth. And there's probably 15 people just throwing this guy. Everyone's shouting at him. And this is the way they were trying to see this guy filled with the Spirit. It's like they're just beating him on the floor trying to get him filled, you know? And of course, all the ideas are. There's bad theology and things. And if you're not filled, something's seriously wrong with you. And so there's a lot of pretending in those circles. Of course, what happened was, is because I was in the front, they thought I was, I was a candidate. <laughs> so as I'm observing, I'm noticing that this cage is forming around me <laughs> of people. <clears throat> and I realized that they're going to start doing it to me, and they did. <laughs> They started pushing me around. Nothing happened. <clears throat> of course, I had sin in my life. But, um, I think they were trying to do it to Miles, too. But This is not the way we get filled with the Spirit. We don't get filled with the Spirit by physically pushing it into somebody. You see, very simple. If you look in Scripture and you ask the question, how is a person filled with the Holy Spirit? It's so simple. It's not this huge, complicated formula. Jesus said in Luke 11, remember when he says, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives an answer. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you? Which of you? If you ask your father for bread, will he give you a scorpion? Or if you ask him for an egg, will he give you a stone? Or vice versa. If you then, being evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's what he said. Do you know what that teaching is about? It's about believing in the goodness of God. It's about trusting that God is gracious and kind and wants to give you those things. The sense of the verse is not, God does not want to give me gifts, so I need to knock and knock and knock and knock and knock and knock and knock until I get him frustrated. Now, Jesus actually says a story quite like that there. And he says, look, if you have a friend who doesn't want to give you a gift and you knock and knock and knock and knock, he's going to eventually give it to you. How much more will your father give it to you who wants to give it to you? He's not saying that you have to knock and knock and knock and twist God's arm. That's not the intention of the parable or that whole teaching. And I think many people think this way when it comes to receiving things from God in prayer. They think, I need to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray because it's on God and he doesn't really want to and I've got to show him I'm good enough. I've got to show him I'm sincere enough. I've got to show him that I'm going to use it right. I've got to show him that I'm a good candidate. When really, that's not believing or asking in faith. And Jesus is simply saying, ask, believing, that you'll receive because God is good. It's that, that's what he's teaching. And he says it about the Holy Spirit. So, so much of our ideas of waiting for the Spirit and asking for the Spirit is so cluttered by these thoughts that we have to be good enough and God is not willing to give it to us. We have to somehow bargain with God. And God wants to give it to us. This is what we're to believe when we seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That God is willing, good, kind, wanting, wanting us to be filled. The second thing is this whole dealing with sin issue. You have to deal with the sin in your life before he'll fill you. Okay, that's not true. Actually, that's a lie. The key to being filled with the Spirit is believing that Jesus Christ has dealt with my sin. My sin has been dealt with once and for all 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross for them and God doesn't remember them anymore. So I'm trying to deal with something that God doesn't even remember if you're thinking that way. Christ has dealt with sin once for all. As long as we aren't believing that, we're not going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 19, Paul prays. He asks. He doesn't twist God's arm. He knows this is God's will. And he asks God to reveal to the saints, to all the saints, the love of Christ that passes knowledge. My knowledge of the love of Christ isn't big enough. Your knowledge of how much Christ loves you isn't big enough. He prays that they might know the love of Christ that passes knowledge so that they might be filled with all the fullness of of God, of the Spirit. 
filled to the full. To the measure that we know, God is for us and not against us. God is loving towards us. To the measure that we know that is to, to the measure that we're filled. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the knowledge of the love of Christ. It's, it's that fullness that you receive when you believe. Turn to Romans chapter 15 for a moment. Romans chapter 15. Fifteen verse thirteen. Look at this beautiful verse that often gets overlooked. And notice the relationship between the filling of the Spirit and faith. It says, Now the God of hope, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Ghost fills you with hope, joy, peace. What does that sound like? The fruit of the Spirit. Through believing. And brothers and sisters, this is how we're filled. How does a person get filled with the Spirit? Simply ask God, fill me with the Holy Spirit, Lord, believing that you're good and believing the good news of what the gospel says, believing the love of Christ, believing the mercy of God towards you. You will be filled with peace, joy, and hope through the power of the Holy Spirit by simply knowing the love of Christ. It's that simple. It's that simple. Because the Holy Spirit, as Billy, one of Billy Graham's friends and associates, Roy Gustafson, he said this wonderful thing. He says, the Holy Spirit doesn't come to make us Holy Spirit conscious, but comes to make us Christ conscious. Meaning that when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we don't go, ah, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We go, oh, Jesus. He's filled me with joy and peace and hope in the God of peace through Jesus Christ. You don't even notice you're just so enraptured with Christ. You're so enraptured with him. When you are rejoicing in the gospel, you are being filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment. When you experience any consolation or comfort of love and joy and peace in Christ, that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. And God desires that for all of us, continually. That's the life that he wants us to live. And that's an awesome, awesome uh, life indeed. So back in Ephesians now, just in closing, just want to brief, briefly point out three characteristics of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because again, much confusion. Well, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, here are the characteristics that should be there. But let's see what it says. What follows the knowledge of the love of God, the fullness of God that follows that? What follows is this. Verse 19 Verse 20 and 21 are three characteristics. First one, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts unto the Lord. In this case, it says singing. Singing. And it, it gives two different 
cases of singing. One is singing to each other, and one is singing to God. Some people make a big deal about how worship, or when we sing, when we sing, it should only be to God, God alone. I think that's noble, but the Bible does teach that we sing to one another as well. Singing, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Part of singing is to encourage the, the brethren. In fact, in Colossians, in the parallel verse, it says, um, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking, uh, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So actually, our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are in one case, in one aspect, to teach and admonish each other. We're, we're, we're looking at each other and we're saying these things. We're singing to one another. Or maybe we're singing to ourselves. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my lips. Now he's saying that to himself. Oh, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It is an encouragement to oneself. So the Psalms is rife with it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is actually an exhortation. Did you know that? It means praise the Lord, and you say it to one another. Wallace, hallelujah, praise the Lord. You ever say praise the Lord to each other? Like maybe someone, you know, gives a praise report and you say, praise the Lord. You can say that to God, yeah, praise you, Lord. Or you can say it to each other, praise the Lord, right? There's different aspects of singing. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you might not even notice you're filled, but it's when it wells up within you and you just say, praise the Lord, or praise God. You're being filled with the Spirit. Why do people sing? When does singing just well up within us? Anybody? <laughs> it's not rhetorical. When does singing well up within people? Mm -hmm. Right. When we're full of joy. In contrast to the drunken songs, let the filling of the Spirit well up in song to God. This is one characteristic of a Spirit-filled life. The second, in verse 20, is giving thanks always for all things. Again, this is another indicator that's the Spirit that works this in us because we're not just not thankful and, oh, I have to give thanks. This isn't the kind of thankfulness it's talking about. It's not the kind when you just know you have to be thankful. You know, I've often noticed in my own life and in others, but I'll just speak for myself, that when it comes to praying for the food, blessing my, you know, thanking the Lord for my meals, it's very easy to just say a prayer of thanks because you have to, right? You ever, you ever thank God for your food just out of kind of guilt? Or just, I should do this? And you're not really thankful you just kind of want to eat it, right? <laughs> I think that if our, if our hearts are not thankful, and granted, sometimes I really am thankful. I just thank, thank you, God, for this food. But if I'm not, it really doesn't mean much if I thank God for the food, does it? Because it's not from the Spirit. It's not from faith. It's not welling up within through my faith in how good God is and that this has come from his hand. 
So notice that. That's just for food. Of course, it says for all things here. But you can start with food as a simple one to think about. Giving thanks for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All things. Whether that be material blessings and most importantly, the spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with in Christ Jesus. That is something to be thankful about. As we think about that. This isn't strong-arming us saying, just be thankful. You don't feel like it, but do it. It's saying, basically, to be filled with the Spirit is to think upon all the blessings that you've been blessed with. Let your faith and your eyes be fixed on those things that the Spirit might fill you and you would be thankful. Because, brothers and sisters, we have everything to be thankful about. Everything to sing about. Everything to be rejoicing about. Everything to be edifying one another about. And lastly, this interesting verse says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Another characteristic of the Spirit-filled life. One that often doesn't get noticed. Usually, a person who's so-called Spirit-filled blows by everybody. You know, He's the Spirit-filled one. He's the one that will plow everybody over and everyone has to sort of, woo, but take a few steps back for this guy, right? He's the advanced Christian. But the advanced Christian is the one who is the subordinate Christian, the one who submits to the weakest of the brethren. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And as we read Two weeks ago, Brad pointed out in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says this, All of you, yea, all of you, be subject one to another. It's the same exhortation. And be clothed, clothed with humility. This is what it is. It takes humility to submit to another person, doesn't it? a characteristic of the spirit-filled life, which, by the way, the spirit-filled life is the consistent life in light of the truth. As you put your eyes on the truth, what wells up within you is a consistent life. And what is consistent with the gospel? What is consistent with the truth as it is in Jesus? But thankfulness, praise, edification, and humility. And bending over backwards for the weakest brother for whom Jesus died. These things are consistent. This is a walk that's consistent. The spirit-filled walk, the walk in the light, the walk in the truth. It's all the same. So, brothers and sisters, do you see the value of a walk like that? Do you see the value or do you only think of oh, this isn't important because the only thing that's important is that I'm forgiven. And that is important. Don't get me wrong. But do you see the value that as a Christian now in this very short time that you have in a world that's full of evil the value of buying up the opportunities to walk in the light, in the truth, and by the Spirit. And here's the exhortation. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the gospel, the life-giving and life-changing gospel. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for making us new creatures in Christ. Thank you for throwing our sins into the deepest sea, the sins that we have committed, the sins that we do commit, the sins that we will commit. You've buried them with Christ in his death. Ah, we thank you. We thank you for the life that ushers forth from that death. God, I pray that you would fill us all with the Holy Spirit. I ask this, God, knowing that you desire it, not twisting your arm. I ask that you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you would allow us to set our minds and our eyes on the things above, to see one another and ourselves as totally new in Christ Jesus, totally righteous, totally loved. And Lord, through that vision, we would be filled with the Spirit to live a life that's consistent. Make us thankful people, Lord. Make us joyful people. Make us humble people. I pray. And start with me, I pray. Let the world might see, Lord, the light in the darkness. Pray that you would turn many people in this valley to yourself. Pray that we would see thousands of people converted and saved here gloriously to the truth of grace, turned from darkness to light, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins with those who are sanctified through faith in the name of Jesus. Thank you, God, that we don't have to twist your arm. We just praise you today for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.